This morning, we're going to be continuing and finishing our two-part series called Taking My Place. And if you happen to miss last week's message on part one, basically this series is about looking at some stories in scripture where Jesus has an interaction with someone. And this interaction is very powerful because he takes over the role in which they should have been dealing with, which is why we called it Taking Our Place. And so this morning, I want us to take a look at another story, even though it may be short, that really helps us to truly see the extent that Christ went so you and I could be here this morning. And the story that we're going to look at this morning is one that we've all read many times. We've read it in many different occasions and different scenarios, but I want us to look at some main points, some facts that maybe you never thought of before. Or you never put the puzzle pieces together to see it in this way because it presents a very powerful picture of who Jesus is. So let's just dive right on in once again in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. And we're going to read the whole passage first, and then we'll kind of break it down towards the very end. So it says this, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and prayed a third time saying the same thing. And then he returned to his disciples and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. And with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas says, greeting rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrest him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. What another crazy story to look at, right? 
So let's set the scene just a little bit here. It's the Passover celebration and Jesus and his disciples, they have just finished eating their last meal with one another. And so they're heading out of Jerusalem to their favorite resting place. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane, or in some translations, it's called the Garden of Olives. But this garden isn't typically what you and I would think it would look like. It's more like a small summer terrace that's surrounded by a low-lying stone wall. And the garden was probably 50, 70 square feet wide, and it was used to grow olive trees and different types of herbs. Now, at the entrance to this garden, there would have been a small house or a covered shack that had this olive press inside of it that would be used to make olive oil from the trees that grew inside the garden. And this garden, it probably belonged to one of Jesus's followers because we know it's a place that Jesus and his disciples frequently went to to rest, to pray, and to relax. So here they are, they've just finished their meal and they're working their way towards this garden and most of the disciples go with Jesus, except for Judas, of course. And when they get to the entrance of the garden, Jesus has them wait there. And he only takes three guys further in with him, Peter, James, and John, who are called the sons of Zebedee. We see Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. He knows that he's about to be arrested. He knows that he's about to be put to death. He knows the pain and the trials that his disciples are about to go through. So he wants to spend some time in prayer. So as he takes these guys in the garden, he goes about a stone's throw distance away from them and he begins to pray. But he tells them to sit, to watch, to pray for him. And as Jesus is off praying in the garden, he has this very powerful and this very painful moment in prayer where he prays and he says, Father, if it's possible, take not this cup from me what literally translate as father, if it's possible, spare my life because I know what's about to happen and I don't want to die. But he says, but I know that your will is greater than mine. And I know that if this is the only way that it's possible, that I will be faithful, that I will do whatever it is that you ask without hesitation, without any remorse or any objection, even to the point of giving my life for you. It's a very painful prayer. It's a very powerful prayer. And we know that Jesus is just emotionally destroyed inside. That he's just wrecked. He's going through so much stress and anguish that scripture says that he begins to sweat blood. And I actually looked it up. It's a medical condition. It's called hematohydrosis. Hopefully I pronounced that right. But it's the ability of one person to produce blood from their sweat glands when undergoing extreme amounts of pain, anguish, tension, or stress in their life. So that sets the stage and lets us know exactly the mentality and the physical ability of Jesus in this moment. He's just emotionally drained and he's wrecked. And so in this state of mind, in this state of being, he goes back to his disciples because he wants to have fellowship with them. He's just experienced this powerful prayer and he wants to interact with them because he's only got a little bit of time left to do so. So he makes his way back to them. And when he gets there, what does he find? They've fallen asleep. Instead of watching and praying and strengthening and encouraging them like he had asked them to do. See here when Jesus needed them the most, they were asleep and they were just sitting there. So Jesus, he walks over and he kind of nudges them awake and he's like, come on guys, could you not even stay awake with me for one hour? He says, watch and pray so you do not enter into temptation. See, once again, Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen. He knew that this armed group was about to come and have a confrontation with his disciples in the garden. And so he wanted their hearts to be ready 
That when temptation came, that their actions would be pure and they would be just. He's trying to prepare them for what's about to happen. But he doesn't just stop there. He goes a step further. He says, but you know what? I understand. I understand that you're tired. I understand that you're weak. I understand that you just heard some things that are probably very upsetting to you. You heard me say that one of my closest followers is going to betray me. You heard me say that I'm about to leave and where I go, you cannot follow. And you heard me say that I'm about to leave and I will not return. I know that you're tired. I know that you're struggling with thoughts, with everything that's going on, the weight of it all. And I know that you can't help but give in to it. That's why he says this. He says, look, I know that the spirit is willing. It's not the problem. He says, it's the flesh. The flesh is weak. See, these aren't words of scorn or rebuke. No, these are words of tender love and compassion to a group of guys that he so desperately loves and wants to see safe. See, Jesus had given them a very simple task, to stay awake, to watch, to pray, but they couldn't do it. The fleshly desires, the temptation to sleep was so overpowering, they gave into it and in essence started neglecting what Christ had asked them to do. And I have to stop here in the story and think, how many times have I fallen into this situation? Maybe not the exact same scenario, but just really how alike am I with these disciples where Jesus, he asked me to do something and I give in to the desires and the wills of my flesh and I neglect it. And I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm just so excited, I'm so on fire for the Lord that I get home, I turn on my light and I open up my Bible and I start reading and I have this most amazing two hour long nap time, right? Where I open my Bible and I start reading and two hours later I wake up refreshed and I'm at the exact same page in the exact same spot that I started. And reality is that I don't even know if I read a single word. See, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How much I identify with that. And so that leads me to my first bullet point this morning on your outlines. And it's this, that just as we see Jesus interceding and he's defending and he's protecting and loving on his disciples, we need to know that God loves us and he defends us despite the weakness in our flesh. That God still loves us and he still defends us despite whatever weakness currently exists inside of us. See, sometimes our desires of our flesh, the temptations of this world are too powerful for us. They're so overpowering, we feel we have no choice but to give in to them. And when we do, usually one of two things happen. Either first, you let it become a part of your life. You assimilate to it. It becomes a part of your being. And you think, well, if this was something God really didn't want me doing, then he would have removed it in the first place. So it becomes a part of your daily routine to where you see that nothing is wrong with it. And if somebody tries to point it out or bring it up, you get defensive, You get angry and you start trying to justify your actions and your emotions and your decisions so you can't be proved of any wrongdoing. And if that's not you, maybe you're on the other spectrum of it to when you do succumb to the desires of your flesh, the weaknesses of your flesh, you immediately feel remorseful. You feel sad. You feel depressed because you know that you have turned against Jesus. And in doing so, you feel ashamed. And you start to push yourself further and further and further away from him because you're ashamed to be found in his presence. God wouldn't want somebody like me in this state of weakness. But you see, we need to know that we have a God that loves us, a God that's full of mercy, a God that's full of grace, a God that's full of compassion. Even when we succumb to the weaknesses of our flesh, he's still there to love us 
and defend us, no matter what it is that's going on in our life. And if we fall even after that, he's right there extending his hand to us a second time, a third time, a fourth time, however many times it takes, because he loves us and he understands. And I like that part that he understands because scripture tells us that when he came to this earth, he took on flesh so he could become like man, which means he knows the weakness of flesh. He knows the trials. He knows the temptations. He knows the tribulations that you and I experience every single day. And because of that, he says, I understand where you're coming from. And that's why I still love you. That's why I still defend you, no matter what the world makes you feel like you have to do. That I will never leave your side because I want to have that fellowship. I want to have that relationship with you. And he does it freely for us. So let's go back to our story Jesus is, he's praying, right? And he just finished talking to his guys and he goes back into the garden a second time to pray. And after he's prayed for a while, he decides, let me give the disciples another chance of fellowship. I really want to interact with them. I want to see where their heart's at. So he goes back over to them and what does he find? They're asleep again. And he just can't get it right with them. But this time scripture says that he didn't wake them up. It says that Jesus prayed again. And we need to stop here in our story because there's two very important viewpoints that I think most of us have never seen or thought about in this specific verse. The first one is this, that our modern day translations differ greatly from what the original Greek has to say in this passage here. Our modern day Bible is translated as Jesus, after this, he asks them a question. He says, why are you still sleeping and resting? Like he's surprised by it, even though he just told them, I understand where you're coming from. I know that you're going to sleep. And then he comes back and is like, why are you sleeping? It's like, you gave us permission, right? But the original Greek translates it completely different. Look at what it says. It says this, sleep now and take your rest. I like this one so much more because this shows the heart and the power of Jesus. It's like, I know the flesh is weak. I know you're struggling. I know that things are about to get crazy. So sleep now. Get your rest and I'll watch over you. I'll protect you and I'll wake you when I need you the most. Second thing we need to know about this one verse is that there's probably a massive span of time that passes in this one sentence. Because we know that Jesus has just finished eating his last meal with his disciples and they made their way to the garden. So it's probably six, seven o'clock, somewhere in that range. And we know that when Jesus is arrested and he's tried in the court of Caiaphas, that a rooster crows symbolizing that dawn is coming. So I looked it up, depending on how crazy the rooster is, somewhere between 4 and 6 a.m. it crows, right? So there is this massive span of time that has to pass in this window. And I think in this time, Jesus is just walking around, watching over his disciples as he sees them laying on the floor against the rocks, against the trees. He's watching And he's praying over them, just waiting for the inevitable to happen, just waiting for Judas to come. And I get this beautiful picture of him just extending his hand out, putting it over each of his disciples and one by one praying for them. Father, man, here's Peter. Peter is such an amazing man. Peter is so in love with you. There is nothing that Peter wouldn't do for you, God, but he's about to blow it and he's going to mess up in such a big way that it's going to eat him alive. He's going to get depressed. He's going to be filled with worry and doubt. He's not going to know what to do. But Father, I pray that you strengthen him, that you encourage him, that you build him up, that you make him into a rock in which you can build your church upon. Isn't that such an amazing picture to think about Jesus praying for his disciples? 
And that leads me to my next point here. And I think it naturally flows that Jesus doesn't just love us and defend us despite the weakness of our flesh. But as we see here, that Jesus continually prays for us. Jesus is continually in prayer for you and for me. Have you ever thought about that? The wonderful maker, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the host of hosts, the prince of peace, the mighty counselor, the savior of the world prays for you and he prays for me. And we know that's true because he even tells us this in scripture. We see in the gospel of Luke chapter 22 in this very same scene from a different author's perspective that Jesus actually approaches Simon Peter and he says this. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. See, even though Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him, he knew exactly what was going to happen to his disciples, he still prayed for them just as he prays for you and he prays for me. See, Jesus intercedes on our behalf through prayer, even when we turn our backs against him, even when we despise him, when we spit in his face, when we go against his will for our life, he is constantly and repetitively there for you and for me. And he prays for strength. He prays for encouragement. He prays for our faith to grow and he prays for our forgiveness. We know that because in one of his most famous sayings, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Isn't that such a powerful thing to think about that Jesus is actually spending time praying for you and me because that's how much he loves us. He doesn't just want to save us. He just doesn't want to defend us. He also wants to be in prayer for us because he knows he's the only person that can keep us from getting too deep into the weakness of our flesh. And so he wants to be that support for us. So let's go back to our story one final time. Jesus is praying over his disciples in the garden here. And it's an amazing scene, but there's another big thing happening at the same time. Judas is off currently betraying Jesus. Seeing the opportunity to capture and arrest Jesus in the middle of the night, away from his disciples, away from his followers, away from the crowds, away from anybody who could uprise and lead a rebellion against the actions. The high priests and the leaders, they devised this plan to capture Jesus. And they know that they can't do it themselves, that they're going to need some assistance. So they go to the Roman government to get help in arresting Jesus. And this in and of itself is a very dynamic point in the story because the Romans and the Jews, they didn't like each other whatsoever. But the Jews knew that the Roman law in the land was that they could not execute or sentence anybody to death. See, the temple guards, they only had the ability to try and convict people on authority of the high priest in matters of church and ministry. They could arrest, they could capture, they could hunt, they could escort. They couldn't kill anyone. They couldn't sentence anyone to death. They couldn't torture anyone. Only the Romans could do that. And thanks to the gospel author, John, who also writes about the story, he tells us that there is an auxiliary Roman cohort that comes with the leaders and the high priest to arrest Jesus. And we know historically that a Roman cohort is about a thousand soldiers strong, 760 foot soldiers and 240 cavalry. So an auxiliary Roman cohort would have been about 200 to 400 armed men. That's crazy to think about, right? And they probably were stationed in Caesarea by Herod because it was the Passover. That way, in case there was any rebellion or a mob or an uprising during this celebration, an army could move in quickly and immediately put it down, showing Rome's power. But the sheer size of the group that went to arrest Jesus that night showed that they were afraid of him. It showed that they were ready for him to break out in warfare. 
And he would lead this mob. He'd lead this rebellion, whatever it would take. It even says that they carried lit torches with them on a night that had a full moon and anything could be seen bright as day. Like he'd be lurking in the darkness waiting to assassinate them without them knowing. It's a crazy scene when you think about it. So Judas leading the way with the high priest and the leaders and the high priest servant and the Roman guards, they all move into the garden. And when they get there, Judas moves forward because he had arranged a signal identifying who Jesus was, which the signal was a kiss on the cheek. And culturally and societally, it was and still is a customary greeting of a friend in some places. That's how the disciples would greet one another. That's how they would greet Jesus. So it wouldn't be seen out of the ordinary for Judas to walk up and kiss Jesus on the cheek because he hadn't seen him for a while. He had left from the dinner and a time had passed and now he sees Jesus. So it was their custom to greet each other in this manner. But look at how Jesus responds to Judas knowing full well that Judas has come to betray him, knowing exactly what's going on, his first words to to Judas are, do what you came to do, friend. See, Jesus still addresses Judas as a friend, as a companion. He treats him in that manner, even though he knows that Judas has come to betray him. So the guards, they move up to arrest Jesus, and it's in this morning, or in this moment, that I think the disciples wake up. And Peter, still half asleep and still groggy, kind of opens his eyes and he just sees this massive group of people who weren't there a couple minutes ago, full in armor with swords carrying these torches, and he panics. He grabs his sword, he jumps up, and he just starts swinging and chopping and dicing, right? And he happens to get the ear of Malchus, the high priest servant. Now, cutting off of someone's ear, it was and is considered a very violent attack. It was actually used as a form of torture in some places in the world. But Judas's, or not Judas, I'm sorry, but Peter's response here incited a greater response on behalf of the crowd. You see, the disciples all get up and they now go to try to defend Jesus. But Jesus, he kind of puts himself in between them and he says, no, put away your swords. See, he's not condoning the idea of what a sword stands for because a sword stands for good things. It was given to the government to do things in which it was designed to do, to repel invaders, to defend your land, to avenge the death of a brother. The sword has good purposes, but Jesus tells them to put their sword away because he says the truth is the sword is never meant to advance the gospel message. That's not how we do it. He says the world has these devices. They have these weapons that are physical, but our weapons as a disciple of Christ is so much powerful because it's a spiritual weapon. He says, guess what? You have the sword of the spirit. You have the word of God, which is more powerful than any double-edged sword could ever be. You don't need to act in this violence. And that's why he looks at Peter and he's like, come on, Peter, don't you see what's going on here? I could just snap my fingers. I could just call on God. And in an instant, he would send 12 legions of angels. We know it's one single angel that moves through a Syrian camp and completely destroys thousands of people. He says, I could send 12 legions of angels from my father to deliver me from their hands. But he doesn't. He says, because I have a different plan in store here. There's a different, there's a greater thing in store than this. I don't need you flailing your sword around, chopping people's ears off. So Jesus reaches down, he picks up Malchus's ear and just pops it back on like a Mr. Potato Head, right? I couldn't help myself. I had to, it just fit so well, right? He puts it in there. And it's so interesting to me that one of the last miracles of Jesus Christ is to still heal someone who came 
to kill him. Even at the very last moments of his life, Jesus was still putting others before himself, taking people's place. So the armed guards, they're moving in to arrest Jesus, but there's a bigger issue at store here. You see, because of the disciples' actions here, they're now guilty of violating the temple law. And because they pulled their swords in the presence of a Roman army, they're now guilty of violating Roman law. And as such, they could be seen as traitors, guilty of treason and insurrection, seen as enemies of the state, and as such enemies of the Roman Empire. So these guards, these army, they now had the full ability to go and put down the disciples with whatever force necessary, without even having to justify their actions, because they're enemy combatants in the eyes of Rome. And I get this picture of them seeing Jesus kind of standing there and seeing these disciples with swords. They shift their attention and they move to put down forcibly Jesus' disciples. But once again, Jesus, he puts himself in between them. He says, no, I will go peacefully with you if you let my disciples go free. See, once again, Jesus steps in, he intervenes and he takes their place. And as he does so, and as the guards are arresting and we read that the disciples, they run and they flee kind of ashamed, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen. See, at the last meal that they shared together, they were all boasting and bragging, saying, God, we would do whatever for you. Jesus, we would go to the ends of the earth. We would be thrown in prison. We'd even die for you. But now that they have the ability to do so, being confronted with this face to face, they chose to run. They chose to abandon Jesus in this moment. But despite all that, Jesus still stood firm in his ground and he took their place. That brings me to my third and final point this morning, which is this, that Jesus doesn't just love us and defend us despite the weakness of our flesh, that Jesus doesn't just pray for us continually, but it's this, that Jesus is willing to sacrifice for us despite our shame of him. Jesus is still willing to sacrifice for you and for me, no matter how ashamed we are of him. And you may think, man, I'm never ashamed of Jesus. But think about that. How many times have you said that you would never be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ, but you've never even spoken of him to your friends, to your families, to your coworkers, to your neighbors? The sad truth is that when the name of Jesus comes up outside of the church setting, we don't step up to defend him. We don't step up to do what we know is right. We kind of back down and we cowered away in fear. And sometimes we're ashamed to be identified with this group called Christians. You see, when these kind of situations happen, just like the disciples are faced with enormous odds in front of them, we're prone to act in unexpected ways. And you can either defend Jesus or you can run away from him. What's really important for me to notice in this story is that Jesus says that he could have just spoken words and this scene never would have happened. But he says, but I didn't do it. You know why? Because I knew it was what had to happen in order for you to live. He says, I knew that I would have to sacrifice my life in order to pay for the requirement that sin asked for so you and I could live. I thank God that he made that sacrifice for me. I thank God that he made that sacrifice for you. And I thank God that he actually stepped in and he did intervene that day and stop that rebellion from going any further. Because if it hadn't, he never would have been put to death. He never would have been tried, convicted, tortured, beaten, dragged, crucified, so he could rise again as a conqueror over death. See, I'm so grateful for God because he took my place. And I just encourage you and I challenge you not to leave here today without recognizing that truth without allowing that reality to sit in your life and to say that God was willing to go so far that Jesus gave of his life for me 
What am I willing to do for him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful once again just to be here today. God, your grace and your mercy, we don't deserve. But God, you do give it to us freely every single day again and again and again. God, there's no depth, there's no length, expanse of how much you love us and how much you're willing to do for us. And God, I pray that we would just have the courage to do a fraction of that back to you. God, that we would actually stand up. God, that we would come to your defense. God, that we would just proclaim your name amongst our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, that we would have the courage and the ability to see what you have done for us and allow us to be passionate about living our life for you. God, I pray as we just go forward into this new year that we decide this is going to be a year of change. It's going to be the year where we just stop calling ourselves Christians, but where we start acting like a disciple. We start acting like a true follower who's willing to do whatever it takes just to be with you, to be loved by you. We love you, God. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.